In John chapter 20 and verse 19, it starts out with the world's most depressing prayer meeting. The disciples have had their leader die, crucified, dead, gone, when they thought that he was going to come up and set up a kingdom. His throne, they were all going to get positions in the government, and now he dies. And they are huddled together in a locked room, the Bible says, for fear that the same thing that happened to Jesus is now going to happen to them. It's in the middle of that room that Jesus appears. Talk about a guy who knows how to make an entrance, right? And he says, peace to you, which is what you'd have to say if you just showed up in the middle of a locked room to a group of people who thought you were dead. (laughs) Peace to you. And then he says it twice, actually, and then he does something very interesting. He says to them, as the Father sent me, I send you. Then he breathes on the disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. It's only two times in the Bible where God breathes on man. One of them is in Genesis 1.26, where God created man in his image and after his likeness. Breathes into, he takes and grabs a hold of some dirt from the earth, and he lifts it up and goes, no other place, no other creation gets the breath of God into it like that. And in that moment, the combination of breath and mud creates man. Man is born in a face-to-face encounter with God. And becomes, in that breath, a spiritual convergence zone, a divine convergence zone mingling heaven and earth. That's who you are. Weird, isn't it? It's amazing. It's awesome. So Jesus, after the resurrection, solidifies what the cross paid for. It didn't just pay for your salvation to get into heaven when you die. Death, the burial, and resurrection didn't pay to get you into heaven. It paid to get heaven into you. It restored you back to the image and likeness of God that we lost all the way back at the garden. And once again, God looks at man and goes, receive the Holy Spirit. That's the birthplace of the church right there. And then Jesus says something so fascinating. He says, and whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. And whoever sins you retain, they retain. So we're going to come back to that verse in more detail later on tonight. But I want you to just ask yourself this question tonight. What would the ramifications be for my life, for your life, if we actually believed that verse was true? And I don't think there's a Christian anywhere that says, I don't believe the Bible. I don't think there's a Christian anywhere that could read the words of Jesus and say, I don't agree with that. But I think by and large... Pretty much 100% of the church read this verse and has no idea how to apply it and most certainly doesn't act like it's true. Imagine with me the ramifications of what it would be like if we took Jesus seriously and believed what he just said. Whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. And whoever sins you retain, they are retained. It's a bit of a a challenge for us to steward the grace of God as if it were up to us to let this world know that it's forgiven and loved and free. It's as if God is saying, I'm putting my grace into your hands, church. And if this world doesn't know it's forgiven, it's not because I haven't provided the means by which it has been done. It's because for whatever reason... 
You're withholding something that's been done from people to whom it's been done. They overcame, the Bible says, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. The blood of the Lamb was what he's done. The word of the testimony is that we tell about what he has done. And the message of the gospel, somebody asked one time, you know, hey, what's the, the gospel in one word, in one sentence? God's up to something, and he wants you in on it. doesn't answer the question, it provokes a question. Up to what? Oh, more than you can begin to imagine. That's going to take an eternity to uncover. But he wants you in on it. He's not leaving you out in the cold on this thing. He wants you involved. Whoever sins you forgive. What if, what if as the body of Christ, we took responsibility to release the grace of Christ over people? And again, we're going to come back to the verse in more detail. But I decided, when I saw this, I thought, has this ever happened in the Bible before? What's the precedent for this, and how did Jesus do this? Well, <clears throat> take, uh, take your Bibles and go to Mark chapter 2. I want to show you a story that's, again, one of the strangest stories. It's the story of Jesus having a house church meeting. In this house church meeting, um, there's so many people that nobody else can get in. And there's this guy, this paralyzed guy, and his friends want him healed badly. They don't want to follow Jesus because they don't stick around. They don't want him healed, uh, I think, because they want him to be a follower of Jesus because he doesn't even stick around. Whatever these guys are on their way to do, they need this guy healed. And now. And they hear Jesus is in town and they know what he can do. So these guys come up with a strange idea. They can't get in the house so we're going to break a hole in the roof and let him down. And this is what I would say is the modern-day equivalent of let's put this guy on the hood of a car, drive the car through the side of the house, slam on the brakes, he'll slide off the hood, land right in front of Jesus, Jesus will heal him, we'll be on our way. That's essentially what you have going on here. Proving that these guys must have been college students. I'm pretty positive about that. <laughs> They let this guy down through this hole in the roof. And, uh, you know, it's, it's weird because the coloring books, the Christian coloring books from Sunday school make it look like a neatly engineered operation. You know, like as if they had a ton of time to plan this thing out with four ropes all going down at the same time, you know, and they let this guy down. I don't know how they let him down. Maybe they got like a, you know, hold him by an ankle or something or just, I, they could have just actually shoved him through the hole and let him hit the floor. He's paralyzed. So he's not going to feel anything anyway. And if you break something, what, Jesus is going to heal him. They can be on their way. No big deal. Just step inside my twisted mind for a while. And, no. So I, I don't know how this all happens, but said so they let him down before Jesus. And Mark chapter 2 says this. When Jesus saw the faith of his friends. When he saw the faith of his friends. He said to the young man this phrase. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, the religious leaders are all sitting around, they're watching this thing, and they go, wow, this guy blasphemes. Nobody but God can forgive sin. Now, Jesus knows what they're thinking, and so he says to them, hey, what's easier, to say rise and take up your bed and walk, or say your sins are forgiven? There's an interesting revelation that uh, 
you really need to know. It's, it's Christianity 101, and it has to do with Jesus' use of the phrase, Son of Man. Whenever Jesus uses this phrase, Son of Man, he's demonstrating what is possible for every single one of you. He's demonstrating what's possible for every believer who's forgiven of sin and surrendered to the power of the Holy Spirit. So question, how much sin did the blood of the cross take care of? All of it. So there's really only one question left for every one of us, and that is this. How surrendered to the Holy Spirit are we willing to be? So whenever he says the phrase, Son of Man, he's talking about something you and I can do. Jesus said of himself over and over again, the Son of Man can do nothing of himself. I only do what I see the Father do, I only say what I hear the Father say. In other words, I'm so completely emptied of any divine ability to complete my assignment, I am going to show you all what it looks like to be truly human. A person surrendered to the voice and the spirit of God. This is what's possible for you. And so, in this phrase now, after Jesus has just said, son, your sins are forgiven, they grumble and say, nobody but God can forgive sin. And this is what Jesus responds with. What's easier, to say, rise and take up your bed and walk, or to say your sins are forgiven? Here's the phrase, listen. But that you might know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sin, I say to you, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And he releases, catch this, healing and forgiveness in the same breath to a young man who never even asked for it, purely on the basis of the faith of his friends. Just let that tweak your theology just a little bit. The reality is, is I think Jesus is better than we think. It's true. <clears throat> Here's another example. You guys remember the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery? Fascinating story, because Jesus is standing around with a group of leaders, and they're posing questions to him. They're about to entrap him in a situation. And they bring this woman, she said, the woman was found, caught in the act of adultery, the very act, and they throw her at the feet of Jesus, which is, this is how religion evangelizes. You deal with her. And brings up all kinds of questions. How did they catch her? How did they find her? Why was only she there and not the guy? Yeah, you know, so many different questions. So the law, they said, the law says we're supposed to stone her. What do we do? Jesus decides he's going to bend down in the dirt and draw or write or whatever. I, who knows what he's doing down there? He bends down and he writes something. And everybody has an idea of what they think that Jesus was writing. I don't think it's so important what he was writing. If we needed to know that, we would know that. I think what we get a picture of is what was important, and that is not what he was writing, but what he was doing. And what he was doing was actually slowing down this entire mob mentality. When a mob gets going, it gets crazy. If you've ever been in any kind of a mob at all, it's like you get caught up in it. And 
What does Jesus do? Rather than enter into the debate, rather than show up on the other side of the conversation, he does something so unexpected it almost makes no sense at all. There's this heated moment of urgency and Jesus decides to play in the sand. And one by one, and he says, he looks up and he'll say things like, let he who is without sin among you cast the first stone. Goes back to his art project. He's doing something that doesn't make any sense to anybody who could be watching this thing. And yet, he slows the whole process down to where they now have to think about their own individual response to what's about to happen. Are they going to take on judgment? And one by one, they all drop their stones. And pretty soon, there's nobody left. They're all gone. Jesus and the woman are left alone. And Jesus and her have this very brief conversation, but it's so important. First thing he says to her is this, is there no one here to condemn you? And and I want you to understand what's happening here. In John chapter 20 and verse 23, when he says, whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. He doesn't tell us how to be restrained with this or how to be radical with this. He doesn't give us any rules. He doesn't say if they repent. He doesn't say if they do all the things right. He doesn't say if they take your six-week discipleship class. He doesn't say if, if you think they're sorry enough. He doesn't say any of that stuff. He gives no rules to it at all. He says whoever, in other words, however radical or restrained you want to be, in showing my love, go for it. Okay, so take that, and let's go back to this scenario. He says, hey, is there nobody here to condemn you? What is he saying in that moment? What he's looking for is agreement. See, when you forgive somebody, you're agreeing with God. When you release grace, you're agreeing with heaven. Your release of grace or withholding of grace oftentimes will reflect how good you think God is. And what he's doing is he's looking around for somebody to come into agreement with. Because God has a value for community and agreement. So when Jesus says to this woman, hope you catch this, he says, is there nobody here to condemn you? He's essentially saying, anybody here I can come into agreement with in your condemnation? No. She says no, right? And he looks around, there's nobody there. So he is going to now put on display his default position. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, the order of this doesn't make sense. See, true justice would say this. Step one, go and sin no more. And when you have proven that you can do things right, then I will not condemn you. In other words, I'm withholding judgment first on the basis of your actions. But he puts it backwards. He says this, I don't condemn you. Now, go sin no more. He releases grace over somebody who hasn't deserved it. And I think when he says, go and sin no more, I don't believe Jesus is saying, hey, good luck. You know, if you can keep yourself clean, that'll be great. Maybe I won't be around to rescue you next time. So, you know, you're off the hook on this one. Good for you. That's not what he's saying at all. Because if we said, hey, you know, go and sin no more, well, where's the discipleship in that? Here's the power of Jesus' words. Every time he speaks, he creates. Every time he speaks, he releases freedom. He releases reality into the atmosphere that shifts things. When he looks at her and says, I don't condemn you, that's freedom. 
Now go and sin no more. What he's just done is say, I break the chain of sin off of your life. You've now just had an encounter that will leave you marked and changed forever. I've just pulled condemnation off of you. And now you can walk free. Not on the basis of anything that you have done. You don't deserve what I am giving you. That's why it's called grace. I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Because that is what he's like. He forgives people who don't even ask for it on the basis of the faith of their friends. He releases a person who's caught in an act of of a a law-breaking adultery and he releases them without any condemnation, releases the chains of sin off of their life and sets them free. That's what he does. It's what God is like. He didn't die to make you religious. He didn't die to put a chain of bondage on your life. He died to make you free. Not free to sin, but free from sin. Free to actually walk in freedom. You know what freedom is? Authentic, true freedom? Freedom is being transparent before God with the full knowledge that he's not going to be scared away by your secrets. That's true freedom. Third story I want to share with you. Jesus goes over to the house of a guy one day. They're all reclining. And um, there's a lady that shows up in this house. And she's brought with her an alabaster jar. It's got enough enough perfume in this jar. uh, uh, Who knows how, I mean... If there was any more expensive perfume on the planet, who knows? But this was a year's salary, in a sense, for this one jar. She breaks it open, pours it all over his feet. And then she begins to weep. And as the tears fall on his feet, she takes her hair and she wipes it off. And it's, it's a really uncomfortable scene. It's interesting because when, when the disciples and some of the people at the meal, um, the religious leaders at the meal start grumbling among themselves, this is what they say. If he knew who she was, he wouldn't let her touch him. Which says that she was a person in a sense of ill repute. She had a lousy reputation. You've got to understand somebody with a lousy reputation. If they're a sinner, then any body fluid from them could actually contaminate you and you would have to go ceremonially cleanse yourself in the temple before the priest in order to actually be able to walk pure again. The minute one of her tears were to fall on his feet, she takes some wipes with her hair. Something about this moment that's... See, they still consider her a sinner, and they're like, wow. She's crying all over this guy's feet. If he knew who was touching her, he would not let her do that. Because what they don't know is they don't know the power of righteousness. They know the power of sin. They just don't know the power of righteousness. So as she's weeping over his feet, Jesus finally addresses the elephant in the room. He hasn't said anything about it up until now, but now he says something about it. And this is what he says. Hey, Simon, ever since I got here, she hasn't stopped doing this. Interesting, because you didn't even offer me anything to wash my feet with when I got here. But since I got into the room, she hasn't stopped. You got to understand, Jesus got in there and he reclined. It's not like there's chairs. He's reclining, laid out on the floor, probably laid out on pillows or blankets on the floor, at a low table, and his feet may be behind him. 
And ever since he sat down, here comes this woman. She's been crying over his feet ever since. And he's just letting it happen because he knows it's making the room uncomfortable. It's bothering him. When he finally acknowledges, he says, hey, she hasn't stopped this since I got in the room. And then he begins to acknowledge. You understand why she's doing what she's doing? Because she's been forgiven much. You forgive much, you love much. And the converse could also be true. You're forgiven little, you love little. And I used to think that the terms much and little were quantities of substance. Kind of like this. In order for me to appreciate freedom, I got to go out and do something really seriously stupid so that I can go to jail. And then when I come out of jail, wow, I'll appreciate freedom. And that might work, right? But that's not what he's talking about here because the terms much and little are not quantities of substance. They're quantities of time. It's a time issue. So it could be translated like this. You're forgiven often, you love much. In other words, when you're in an environment where grace is consistently flowing to you constantly, it begins to renew and transform the way you think to the point where all of a sudden that grace, the response to that grace becomes a river of love that flows out of you. So when I see people who have just this this love for God, I know this. They paid a price for that. They've tasted the effect of the grace of God. They've felt the love of God and they respond with love. This is why getting into an environment where grace is released all the time is such a big deal. It's like stepping into a river. It's not that this woman never did anything wrong. She was just forgiven over and over and over and over again to the point where pretty soon she's willing to spend a year's wages on an act of worship that Jesus said, forever this will be talked about and she will be honored. What is Jesus trying to get us to do? To learn to love. Learn to love. It doesn't begin with us learning how to love him. It begins with really what changed her mind and changed her heart. I don't think it's that God is saying to you and I, I'm demanding that you love me. I think what the Lord is telling us is, just let me love you. Before you even do a thing for me become convinced of how much I love you and how forgiven you are. We talked about this a little bit in Sunday school this morning. used to have people coming to the church. Tim, they'd come in and they would look all guilty and, oh man, we bring them up to the altar. We lay hands on them. We pray the prayer with them and they'd get saved and they'd cry and they'd weep and they'd start confessing and all this stuff. And then and we'd say, oh man, you're in the family. You're part of the family of God. Welcome. And so oh, you just... We just love you. And they're like, really? Is this true? Okay, okay, what can I do? Uh, oh, yeah, you want to do some stuff? Yeah, we got some gaps to fill. And so pretty soon they're doing all kinds of stuff. And I thought it was a response to how loved they were. But it, I realized after a period of time in this scenario being repeated over and over again that I was seeing something completely different. Because what they would do is they would start like working as if they were trying to overcompensate for all the lousy choices that they had made in their life. And they're like doing time. And instead of actually an act of love for God, it was more an act of religious community service. Because there came a point in, in pretty much every one of them in their life where they got to the, so 
basically they felt, oh, finally I'm clean, or I've done my penance, or I've done my time. And suddenly they would go from on-fire Christian to they would disappear and we would never see them again. And I'm thinking to myself, what is going on here? And I realized what we were doing was we were, we were giving people a challenge to serve a God they weren't even convinced actually loved them yet. All they were doing was just trying to create just a moment of penance. And I think before anybody does anything for God, you should soak in a good two, three, four, five years of a revelation of how loved you are by God. So that when you actually decide it's time to start doing something for God, it flows out of a pure, just a sense of a revelation of how clean you already are so that you're not working for anything but from something you already possess. This is a big deal to me these days. Discipleship 101 is, you know, just come and sit and learn how loved you are by God. So many people have been sitting in church for so long and still aren't convinced that they're clean, pure, righteous, and holy before God. Maybe it's not God's fault. So let's go back to the verse. John chapter 20 and verse 23. There's so much more about this. I wrote a whole book about it. So... This is just a sliver of it. John chapter 20 and verse 23, where Jesus said, whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. And then the, the next line goes like this, and this is the part that always makes people uncomfortable. Whoever sins you retain, they are retained. Now, follow along with me. Hopefully, in front of you, you've got a Bible that's either a New King James, a King James, an ESV, an NASB. Not a paraphrase, but somehow a, a, a legit, some somewhat word-for-word translation, not just a thought-for-thought. If you have one of those, you'll notice that every now and then in your Bible, there's a word that shows up in italics. And most of the time, when you read in the English language a word in italics, it means, hey, pay attention to this word because it's really important. But in the Bible, that's not what it means. In the Bible, words that are written in italics are are indicated by the italics because they were not in the original. There's nothing in the original to indicate that those words were actually there. So it's the English translators saying, we're adding a word here to try to fill the thought, to bring clarity, or to make sense of the verse. Sometimes it helps greatly, and sometimes it doesn't. This is one of the instances where it helps us to actually lift the italicized word out. So it reads like this. Whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Next line, ready? Whoever's sins, if you'll notice, that word sins in that second line is in italics. So it should read something like this. Let's lift that italicized word out. Whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whoever you retain, they are retained. So it's assumed that because he was talking about sins in the first line that he's talking about sins in the second line. But what if he's not? What if the verse reads like this? Whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven, and whoever you retain, they are retained. There's actually been entire papers written about this, about the Bible translation of this verse that's just fascinating. And it's not, it's not that the Bible got it wrong. They're just saying, hey, we added a word just to let you know that we're talking about sins here. But think about this. Where in the world do you find any place where God gives you permission to retain anybody's sin and hold it against them? No place. There is nowhere. Matter of fact, you're absolutely expressly forbidden from doing that. After the Lord's Prayer, the very first thing that Jesus says is, and if you do not forgive, your Heavenly Father will not forgive you. But if you forgive men their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will forgive you. You have no choice 
but to forgive. It's not even an issue. So the idea of whoever sins you retain, they're retained. You don't have any theological basis to retain anybody's sins anywhere else in the scripture. It's absolutely expressly forbidden. So that doesn't really match. But what if we say, and we lift that italicized word out, and we read it like this, whoever sins you forgive, they're forgiven. And whoever you retain, they're retained. Now the word retain is a fascinating word because it can equally be translated held or embraced. So you can look at it like this. Whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. And whoever you hold, they are held. Or whoever you embrace, they are embraced. Here's the deal with the grace of God. Grace of God is saying this. I'm not holding your trespasses against you, and I'm not letting you go. That's what this verse is saying. Church, don't hold people's trespasses against them, and don't let them go. Hold on to them and don't let them go. Saying, whoever you embrace, they are embraced. Where can we find that theology? I don't know. Anybody remember ever reading anywhere about where maybe a guy named Jesus said something about, no one can snatch you from my hand? Or where a guy named Paul wrote that nothing can separate you from his love? Or how about a a parable that speaks of a son, a prodigal son, who tried his best not to, to be a son anymore, but no matter how hard he tried not to be a son, the father never stops being a father. That's being held. That's being embraced. My favorite line in the prodigal son story these days is this phrase, while he was yet a great way off, his father saw him coming. Jesus shows in the story, in the parable, in the allegory, a father who's gazing at the horizon, lets his son take his journey without condemnation, but is always looking at the horizon. And the minute that son's focus comes back toward the father, the father runs toward the son. Before the son can even get his repentant speech out of his mouth, the father has tackled him, he's kissed him, he says, bring the robe and the ring. You understand, he didn't have to go look for the robe and the ring. It was prepared. Why? Because even though the son tried to stop being a son, the father never stopped being a father, which means the father never saw the son as anything but a son. It's the dynamic of family and relationships. What makes you think God's throwing you away? You throw your own kids away? No, it doesn't happen. Come on, you guys. We, we have this theology with, with God that makes him out to be far more of like a, like, a, like a boss in a factory or a drill sergeant in a military as opposed to a father whose heart is absolutely for you and he wants his kids back. And this is the recklessness of the grace of of God is that Jesus' final challenge to us, final challenge to us, is don't let anybody go. Don't let them go. Hold on to them. Not in a controlling way, in a liberating way. We don't hold on to people in a religiously controlling way. We hold, we, it's, it's like we say to people bent on self-destruction, I'm not letting you go. We say to people absolutely bent on misunderstanding us, you know what, you don't have permission to be my enemy. I'm not letting you go. It's the opposite 
of shoving people out of your life. Instead, you say, I'm not letting you go. Oh, so many things I could say about this. I can preach about this for the next six months and not stop, and that's no joke, and Tracy knows it's true. So much amazing, amazingness about the grace of God and the goodness of God, and I feel like there's, we're, we're in a day of a new reformation. I think when I was talking to you guys last time, I talked a lot about what I feel like is a re- reformation coming, but I feel like in order for that reformation to actually happen, we have to, we have, to have a, a, a revolution of, of the love of God in the body of Christ in such a way that, that we actually take seriously what Jesus told us about our enemies. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. It's fascinating how we tell everybody he said, love your enemies, but with our lives we demonstrate something very different. And we also believe that he doesn't love his. I don't think Jesus would ask us to do something that he himself is not willing to do. His final act is to release grace. You guys have access to my grace. Everything a person did, by the way, Jesus, uh, Jesus did, a person did. Walk on water, check. Peter did it. Raise the dead, absolutely. Uh, uh, how about being translated from one place to another? Sure, Philip did that. He skips entire zip codes. Everything Jesus did, a person also did, except for the releasing of grace and the forgiveness of sins. And it's only after the cross that that is released and given. There's something about that where as the Father sent me, I send you. And it's like, and you want to see the final act of Jesus on the cross? When the, the thief on the cross says to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is a thief, a guy who's not being, he's not hanging there because he's innocent. These guys, these thieves banter back and forth and they say, this guy doesn't deserve what he's getting. We do deserve what we're getting. So hey, hey you know, when you get to where you're going, yeah, keep me in mind. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says, tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. Isn't it interesting that the very final thing that Jesus does here on the earth before he says it's finished is to take a thief home? His final act before he dies is to take a thief home. And his final empowerment to us is release my grace. Give my grace away freely, radically, without restraint. Don't let anybody go. And church, we've spent 2,000 years working really hard to make God famous for judgment when he's supposed to be famous for love. And it's really a challenge. It's a challenge for me, but here, here's, let, me, let, me, let me take a quick right turn here because I feel like there's two things I was supposed to talk about tonight and on time together. For a church to walk in, in radical grace, you gotta per, you, you, first you kind of got to figure out exactly who you are. How many, of you, how many of you, this is your church home? All right? All right, a lot of you. Okay, so I know that there's a few that this is not, right? So... Uh, hopefully everybody gets something out of what I'm about to say here. And, and the fact that you guys came out on a night where snow is falling everywhere and who knows how the roads will be, I mean, this is like, wow, you've got to want to be here because I don't think you would normally be here on a Sunday night, right? All right, okay. So one of the things I think is necessary for this house in the days ahead 
Because I know you've got, you guys have had a major transition happen in the last six months or so. It's to find out exactly who it is that God is creating you to be. Now, I, I'll tell you this. Just because, just because you've had a transition, don't lose heart. Because I've seen a lot of front door revivals happen just after a back door revival. All right? But you've got to figure out, first off, who in the world you are. What you're becoming. Churches typically fall into one of four categories. And it, and it involves a five-fold ministry. Typically not so much apostolic. See, apostles come into a house and they kind of look around and they go, oh, let's see. Mm, this, this, you're missing this and this and this and this. This person needs to be here. This person needs to be here. And that's kind of the apostolic model of things is an apostle will come in and will show you kind of where things are missing. But churches will typically fall into one of four categories. They'll either be evangelistic, prophetic, a teaching church, or a pastor church. One of four. But unfortunately, in this culture, we just slap the title of pastor on everybody and then just let them go. And in order for a house to become truly a house of grace, it first has to establish something about its identity that's absolutely crystal clear to everybody in the room. You also have to be able to acknowledge where it is that you're lacking in some area and, and begin to ask God to fill that up, to bring the, the something about it. So let me explain how this works. Biggest churches in the world are evangelistic churches, without a doubt. Biggest ones out there. Evangelist churches are typically master, uh, master showman churches. These, these churches have short services, 50 to 55 minutes. Um, they'll have thousands of people come in the door. The biggest, loudest sound systems, they dump all their money into something called production. It's just a huge huge deal. And the evangelist will preach a good 20-minute message, and at the end of it, he's living for that landing. Man, he loves that landing. Just let the plane just come in just nice and pick up all the passengers who are about to get saved, because every single week, that's what we're after. That's evangelist. The problem with an evangelist church is that if you go to an evangelist church, it's super exciting for the first six months. And after a year, you're looking around like, I gotta, I got, I've just gotten saved 52 times this year. It's weird how that's happened, but that's, that's where it's at. And so you're like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to duck out of that church, and I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to go to a teaching church, because I need some depth of teaching. And teaching churches can be anywhere in size from typically 50 to 300 people, depending on how good the teacher is. But the teaching churches, that guy will get up and he'll preach guy or girl, whoever happens to be, will get up and preach for an hour to an hour and a half. The problem is teaching churches, they don't know how to land the plane. Because teachers just love to teach and they don't want to quit. So this is the way that a teacher ends a message. Oh, oh, looks like we're out of time. All right, I guess we'll pick this up next week. All right, let's pray. It's just just a downer. It's a real downer. They don't want to land the plane. They don't want to land the plane. They just want to keep teaching and teaching and teaching forever. After a while, though, your brain is about to explode because you got so much information. We're used to brag on your teaching pastor, and now it's kind of like every week. I just get overloaded, so much revelation. I don't know what to do with it. And, and really, you just got equipped to argue with people on Facebook. You become a pro. And suddenly you wake up one day to go, oh, man. I need something. I, I, I need to get in the presence. Yeah. So you leave there and you go to a prophetic church. 
And prophetic churches, I believe there's been scientific studies done on this, you are 92% more likely to be hit in the head with a flag at a prophet church than any other church out there. More than a service isn't a service until at least one shofar has been blown. And the more shofars, the better. As if God is an old man, very hard of hearing. We just need to wake him up with our shofars. My goodness. You ever been in a room where 24 shofars have been blown to the north, the south, the east, and the west? That's an experience. You may not want to repeat it. I didn't feel any more spiritual when it was done than I did when it started. It was very deaf. Anyway... You never know what's going to happen in the prophetic church. It's a highly unpredictable environment. And here's how you know you have a good prophetic service. You say to somebody who goes to a prophetic church, how was service this past week? And they'll go, it was awesome. Nobody even preached. And the teaching people are going, oh my gosh, they're pulling their hair out. Like, how can you even call that a service? That's not real church. Pretty soon, people go, okay, I'm tired of getting hit in my head with the, head with the flags, and, and uh, they never crack a Bible. They talk about dreams and visions and experiences all the time, and it's like, whoa. Okay, it's cool. I love it, the presence of God, but most of the time, prophetic churches have a relationship with God that's like this, real solid vertical, not real solid horizontal, really hard to connect with people. And so you eventually go, I need community. So you end up at a church that I would call a real, genuine, pastor-led church. And the pastor, genuine pastor, doesn't really care whether he preaches or not. He loves doing it because he loves to just feed the people, but it's the people that he loves most of all. The community that's being built, the household of faith, he'll take a bullet for every single one of them. And it's the pastor that can walk into to a restaurant and, and say, hey, Lucy, I heard your mom uh, had the surgery three weeks ago. How's she doing? You know, it knows everybody's name. Crazy. And typically, pastor churches won't be more than about 120 to 140 people at the most because that's about all any one person can have in their life as close relationships. And a true pastor does not want anybody to be outside of their sphere of influence on some level. Everybody is their kids. That's kind of the way that works. But eventually, you get to the point where you're going, and we're becoming a little bit too cloistered. We need souls. You go back to the evangelist church. I need good teaching. You go back to the teaching church. No, I need focus on the presence. You go to the prophetic church. I got to get back to community. You go to the family church again. And you cycle through all of these over and over again because we're built with an appetite for each one. It's like a balanced meal. Because here's the thing. Every one of them has a strength that bugs the other. If you ask, um, you, you ask an evangelist, hey, what bothers you about the teaching pastor over here? They're focused, they're not, they're not focused on souls, which shows what's most important in their life is souls. You ask the teacher, what bothers you about the, the evangelist over here? They'll say, no integrity to the scriptures because their focus is on the word of God. You ask them, what about the, what about the, the prophetic church? They, they don't focus on the scriptures either. They're all talking about dreams and visions that they had. They're, they're, and you ask the prophetic person, what's the most important thing to you? They say, the presence of God. You ask the pastor, what's the most important thing to you? They'll say, the people that God's entrusted me with in the community that I have. 
And the reality is each one needs the other. And I believe for a church to truly, authentically be a house filled with grace, there's got to be elements of those things flowing through the body. It doesn't necessarily even have to be a title. You just see that there are people that are graced with that community building. You see the people that are graced with that teaching gift and that anointing to teach. You see there are people that are graced with that worship, that presence mentality. They're always drawing attention to the supernatural activity of heaven. And you see that there are people that are graced with going out and winning the lost and being those that step out and, 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 and put that clarion call to the gospel out there. But here's the problem. Most of the time, those four individuals have completely different messages when in fact... If they can all come into this realization that releasing the radical love and grace of Christ, each from their own strength within one house, see, I think that's one of the revolutions that we're about to undergo in the body of Christ. Because we're about to get focused on our message, the gospel of the kingdom, and we're about to get focused on the fact that we understand that one, one person doesn't do all of this. We don't just slap a label of pastor on somebody and expect them to be every single one of these things and wear every one of these hats. We begin to realize that there is a team necessary in order to make a body actually function and run in such a way that the Holy Spirit can flow through it. And each person's strength is celebrated. I don't have to be every one of these things. And I believe God is, what I see happening in your church, I see happening in churches all over the place. Happening all, all over the place. And that is something's happening where it's like God's just reaching in and just going, okay, we're just shaking everything up. And if it can be shaken, it's going to be shaken. And now, let's see what remains. And I think, if I can pray for anything for this house, and I want to lay hands on every person in this room tonight who wants it. I can pray for anything in this house. One of the things that Tracy and I really, really have a heart for is to see bodies of Christ come into a realization of the fact that it doesn't matter whether you're an evangelist, a prophet, a teacher, a pastor, or you're an apostolic person that's trying to put everybody into the right spot. We come into agreement that, listen, we're just not letting people go. We're not holding people's transgressions against them and we are absolutely united in making him famous for love. I think we'll see a revival the likes of which has not yet been written about in history. We're on the edge of something. We're on the edge of something that will require something called multiplication. Because if everybody in this city suddenly has an awareness of the presence of God and they want to experience the presence and the love of God, you do not have space in this one building for everybody in this region. So your goal is not to fill this building up. Your goal is to fill this region with the glory of the Lord. This place becomes a rallying point to refocus on your message to refocus on celebrating the call, the grace, and the gift that's on each person's life. It becomes a launching point to send people out to do the work of the ministry. And you keep coming back, and then you keep going out. And you keep, church growth, we've had so long that church growth has been the focus of just about everything.
but I, I feel like that we are coming into a, a day where kingdom growth is going to be the focus. And it's going to require every person who carries that strength, all those different ministry focuses to come into harmony and unity with each other as opposed to conflict, thinking that theirs is the most important focus to have. The reality is, is each one of theirs is the most important focus to have. They're all right. All of them are right. But we are never made to live outside of uh, of, of the body, outside of the community, the household of faith. So I guess if I could leave you with anything in this last night I have, I have with you, and that is this. Be a people of reckless and radical grace in such a way that word gets out in the community. These people love authentically. And find the graces that God has placed within the house and celebrate the differences and the diversity and then different people will free, freely come in knowing that, wait, if they see the treasure in one another, what would they see in me? Every person walking around out there blind to the gospel carries treasure in them. And they will go to a place that's looking for it. It will tell them who they really are. 